0: The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. And now let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 6 and hear our scripture passage for this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed." Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to be present with us by your spirit and that you would speak to us, that you would renew us and shape us. God, that we would encounter you uh, in this moment through your word and by your spirit and that we would be changed. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. In 1963, James Baldwin published a searing depiction of what he called the racial nightmare in America. But despite the fact that Baldwin painted such a startling, dark picture, he nevertheless declared that there was yet time to act for change. Now is the time, Baldwin was saying. The moment is here, and if we act now, Baldwin declared, we can end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. Things were bad, but the time to act had arrived. But, Baldwin said, in the final words of this work, if they missed their chance, they would lose the moment. If we fail to act, he wrote, the fulfillment of that prophecy recreated from the Bible and sung by a slave is upon us. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. Our passage this morning comes from a prophet who encounters God and discovers that the time has passed, that the people of God had missed their moment, that it would be the fire next time, and indeed the fire was already on its way. This fire-filled text is hard to hear, it is difficult to wrestle with, but it has played an important role in the people of faith's reflection on their life with God for centuries. And that's why we're returning it to it for another week after Richard's outstanding sermon on this same passage. We're returning to this passage to linger over it, to stay with it and to ask what is going on with this prophet and this people and this God And what might it mean for us? The passage begins by telling us that the story that Isaiah is telling happened in the year that Uzziah died. Starting a story in the year Uzziah died is like starting a story and it was a dark and stormy night. It's a way of saying trouble is a-brewing. Problems are on the horizon. You see, Uzziah was a good king, a successful king, who in the latter part of his reign became prideful and presumed to try to access God on his own terms. He had entered the temple to the places where only the priests were supposed to be, to an offer, an offering that God had said only the priests were supposed to give. But Uzziah decided that because he was the king, because he was who he was, that he could presume to approach God on his own terms. And Uzziah paid the price, for the Lord struck him with leprosy for his arrogance, and he stayed a leper until the day of his death. This kind of temptation was always present for the people who lived in Jerusalem, not least because God's temple was there, the place where God was understood to be present among his people. The temple was an enormous gift, but it was also a temptation because the fact that God dwelt in this building made with human hands tempted the people of God to believe that that meant that God was at their beck and call, that they had access to him on their own terms, that they could manage and control God, that they could manipulate him for their own purposes. And in that kind of context, against the background of a king who had presumed to try to manage God on his own terms, Isaiah comes into the temple and receives a vision of the Lord on high. Seated on the throne, the temple filled with smoke and shaking, surrounded by angels, the seraphim, who are covering their eyes to hide themselves from the glory of God. These angelic beings are singing back and forth to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. This holiness. What is this holiness that they're referring to? Holiness at its heart refers to God's godness. God's inexpressible life and light and power and beauty. And Isaiah says that this hidden holiness, this God's life is overflowing out into the world. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah has this vision of the Holy One high and lifted up. This encounter with God and his response is to cry out, woe is me, for I am lost. In chapter 5, Isaiah had pronounced woe on those who had committed acts of injustice against their neighbor. Woe against those who would become obsessed with their own pleasure-seeking. Now, in the presence of God's holiness, he discovers that he too is lost. Now, we notice that Isaiah does not say that he's worried that God is going to get up off the throne and come over and punish him. He's not worried that God is going to hand down some sort of sentence of judgment... No, the idea is that God's very holiness, his very being, is a threat. Isaiah will be undone by his encounter with God's very being. What does it mean that the biblical authors tell us that God's holiness is his beauty, his purity, his life, and that it is also deadly? How can God at core be both good and dangerous? The Bible Project, which is a great online tool, you can go there bibleproject.com, has an incredible video on holiness, and they ask this question, and they give the analogy that God's holiness is like the sun. Think about it. The sun's fire and flame and power gives heat and light and warmth. We cannot live on this planet without the sun. And the sun is beautiful. Poets talk about the glory of its rising and its setting. We delight on sunny days to be outside. And yet even here, 93 million miles away from the sun, if we stare at it too long, it will burn out our eyes and blind us. If we spend too long Basking in its rays without protection, it will burn us and scar us, even though we're 93 million miles away. Now imagine if we tried to approach the sun, if we tried to draw near, if we came close. The burning, bright life and glory that brings goodness and blessing here would consume us. And what Isaiah discovers is that that is a pale analogy, a poor glimpse of the reality of an encounter with the holy God, whose holiness and beauty and purity and justice and goodness are like a flame that threatens to consume any who would bring injustice and impurity and unrighteousness and darkness into its presence, into God's searing light Isaiah is right. He is undone. He cannot stand the heat. Of course, Isaiah is at this point experiencing in a particularly powerful way a problem that Israel had always faced. How could a holy God dwell amongst his people? You see, the Old Testament recognizes that you and I were designed to live with this holy God. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God says, I am the Holy One, and I will take this people for my people, and I will dwell with them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. But how is this to happen, given the threat that His holiness is to us? You see, the problem is, according to the Bible, our sin, our impurity is like a virus. It's like a contagion. It's like COVID-19. And, and it, it's, it's our sin and impurity is, is, is connected to death. And when we bring that virus, everything we touch gets stained by that, by that contagion of death, by that impurity. And God's presence is a threat to anyone who brings that kind of impurity into his presence. So what is to be done if we're made to live with a holy God? But the impurity that we bring into his presence makes his presence dangerous to us. The Old Testament's first answer is the system of animal sacrifice. Now, this is really weird to us, but we can understand it if we try to think about what uh, the animal and the impurity and the holiness represent for Israel. You see, for Israel, God's holiness is His life, and our impurity and sin is death. And life cannot be in the presence of this death for long without bringing judgment. And so the solution is animal sacrifice because, as Leviticus tells us, the blood, the life of a creature is in its blood. And so when they sacrificed an animal, that animal was giving its life to offer its life where human sin and impurity had brought death. And so the lifeblood offered to cleanse or cover or purge human sin from the sanctuary, from the place where God dwelt, so that the, the, the death that God's people had brought into God's presence would be replaced with life, and humans and God could again dwell together. That was the symbolism that the, the sacrificial system represented. But the problem, as we learned several weeks ago in Isaiah's day, was that the sacrificial system has ceased to work, because instead of bringing animal sacrifices in a posture of repentance... And a desire to change, God's people had combined animal sacrifices with oppression of their neighbor. They had brought their requests for repentance along with their idolatry and injustice against the poor. And so God had said in Isaiah 1, I'm sick to death of all these offerings. And so here's Isaiah standing in the presence of a God, of a holy God, in his impurity as a man among an impure people. And there's no protection. There's no security. He's just exposed to the dangerous power and holiness of God. And he has no resources with which to move from impurity to purity, from death to life. He has no resources on his own to survive this encounter. And so God himself acts out of his own resources to provide a covering for Isaiah's sin. He sends the angelic being to take a burning coal from the altar that's in the heavenly sanctuary and to fly to Isaiah and to place that burning coal on his lips. Isaiah had said, I'm a man of impure lips. And the angel puts that burning coal in the place of that impurity and makes a covering, makes an atonement, purges Isaiah's impurity so that he can stand in the presence of a holy God. As I was thinking about this analogy with God's holiness being like the sun and God providing a way for Isaiah to be in its presence, I was reminded some of you will have read C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. You will have read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And at one point in that story, the the main characters are sailing ever closer towards the sun. And the brightness is threatening to blind them. And then they discover that the waters of the sea that they're sailing through are sweet, miraculous even. And then when they drink those waters, the waters strengthen their eyes so they can gaze at the beauty of the sun and not be destroyed. And that is a picture of what God does for Isaiah. He cleans him. He cleanses him. He renews him so that Isaiah now can stand in the presence of the Holy One and not be destroyed, which is what Isaiah and you and I were made for all along. Now Isaiah can live with a holy God as he was meant to. And the result of God covering Isaiah's impurity and enabling him to stand in his presence is that Isaiah can also be commissioned, can be sent out on mission. The Lord says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And yet nothing can prepare us for the mission, the assignment, That God gives Isaiah, listen to this, he says, uh, go out for me, I'm going to send you, and Isaiah says, here I am. And God says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God gives Isaiah a message that He tells Isaiah will serve not to save the people, but to harden them in their stance against God. This prophetic message that God gives Isaiah, God tells him out of the gate, will serve to strengthen the people's heart against God so they move ever quickly towards the judgment that God is bringing on them for their sin. Understandably, Isaiah cries out, How long, O Lord? And the answer is harder still. God says that this judgment will last until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in the land, it will be burned again like a terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. For five chapters in Isaiah, the prophet has been saying, Repent! The time is now! This is the moment! Now, Isaiah hears to his horror that the moment for widespread repentance that could rescue them from the judgment, that moment has passed. The judgment is on the way. The verdict has been rendered. The sentence has been handed down. Judgment is coming. And it will be devastating and it will be widespread. What are we to make Of this prophetic word that God says will serve to harden his people's heart. This is surely one of the strangest most difficult themes in scripture to wrestle with but I believe that Isaiah's audience when they heard about God hardening someone's heart would have thought of Pharaoh in Egypt. You see the book of Exodus tells us about this tyrant Pharaoh, a wicked king whose heart was so sick whose heart was so black with sin and injustice and and, and so broken that that he enslaved God's people and he put them into harsh bondage and he even committed infanticide by seeking to kill all of the Israelites' boys that were born. And God rightly sees this injustice and oppression and says, I will bring my judgment. I will bring my liberation. I will rescue my people and stand against that oppressive Pharaoh. And one aspect, God tells Moses, of that judgment, one way I will bring the hammer on this oppressive ruler is by hardening his heart, by handing him over to the sin that he has willingly embraced so that he will not escape the just judgment that I have determined to bring on his head. This heart-hardening is God's way of ensuring that the Pharaoh does not escape the just judgment that he has deserved by oppressing God's people. And now God says to Isaiah, a similar dynamic is occurring with God's own Isaiah is discovering that this king who is enthroned high and lifted up is the Lord over every king of God's people. The Lord over every king on the earth and the Lord and ruler over every human heart. And this ruler will bring justice on those who continue to engage in their oppression and their idolatry and sin. And one aspect, one horrifying aspect, Isaiah realizes, of God's judgment is that sometimes we have gone so far that God gives us over, hands us over to our own sin. And God would hand the people of Judah and Jerusalem over into their own sin and harden their hearts to ensure that the sentence that he had pronounced would be carried out. This is an incredibly hard word. Is there no hope? The passage gives us only a glimmer. And the final words of chapter six, after saying that even if people return to the land, they will be chopped down like a tree. They'll be left like a stump in the wilderness. The final words of the chapter are, but the holy seed is its stump. That reference to the holy seed that's left after the tree is cut down, gives us a glimpse, a tiny glimmer of hope amidst this judgment. The holy seed refers to what we learn from in Scripture as the remnant. The idea that even when God judges, brings judgment on His people, there would always be a remnant, a group, a often small group, who would cling to God, who would remain faithful even in the midst of widespread rebellion and sin. And the the fact that God promises, even in this judgment, there would yet be a remnant, makes all the difference. You see, we need to be clear here. God does not simply tell Isaiah that his message won't work because it will harden God's people's hearts. God tells Isaiah to tell the people that the message won't work because it will harden their hearts. In other words, God is being completely transparent. God calls Isaiah to go to the people and say, I'm going to tell you the word of God, and it's probably just going to harden you so that you receive the judgment that you deserve. And the fact that God is straightforward with his people about that dynamic and then tells him that there will be a remnant who nevertheless remains faithful, a holy seed who will grow up out of the judgment, means that God's announcement of judgment is yet also, and at the same time, an invitation to repentance. This, is, after all, is exactly what Isaiah has experienced. He had stood in the presence of a holy God in his impurity, under God's judgment, and yet God had provided for him an atonement, a covering, a forgiveness so that he could walk with God and be his servant. In chapter 8, Isaiah will refer to himself and his sons and his disciples running to God as a sanctuary, even as God would simultaneously also be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling, a trap and a snare over over which many would stumble and fall. In other words, God is telling Isaiah the effect of this word will mainly be destruction. The time for widespread repentance is past, but some, some remnant will cling to me and run to me as a sanctuary rather than tripping over this hard word of judgment as a stone of stumbling and a trap to make them fall. The effect of us hearing this word, the effect of God's word of judgment on Israel would be to take them by the shoulders and shake them and say, the hour is late. Don't let the Word harden you, but be wrecked by it and renewed by it and run to God as a sanctuary. The rest of Isaiah tells us that this small holy seed will indeed survive And indeed, that God would grow great things out of that holy seed in the rubble of judgment. That God would bring about a restoration and He would use the remnant to renew the entire community and even the whole earth. Listen to Isaiah 35. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There will be life after death, resurrection after suffering, because God will preserve a holy seed, and out of that seed, He will bring a new community, a new opportunity, even as the rest of the book will describe it, a new creation. This hope that God will bring out of the holy seed that is brought through the judgment will ultimately happen, Isaiah tells us, by the work of the servant. And the entire New Testament teaches us to recognize that this servant that Isaiah sees is none other than the Lord Jesus. And what Isaiah 53 says, ultimately, while God's people were still in their hardness of heart, while they were still living with their blind eyes and heavy ears, refusing to repent and so be healed, God would send a servant, his son, who would suffer in their place, who would take the punishment that they deserved, and by his suffering, by his stripes, they would be healed. This servant would suffer and offer his life as a covering for sin, as a final solution for sin, as as a way to bring life out of death, as the ultimate sacrifice against which all those animal sacrifices could be seen as just a picture of what was to come. When God would send His servant, God would send His Son, to be the sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world by offering the life that was in His blood on the cross of Calvary. That is the picture, that is the story that Isaiah was called to give to the people of God in his day. What does it mean for us? This morning we are confronted with a vision of God in all his dangerous glory and holiness. Not primarily in the depiction of God on a throne and His robe filling the temple surrounded by angels, but we encounter this dangerous holiness ultimately in the face of Jesus, the Messiah. And we must say here that if all this talk of judgment and hard-heartedness and, and holiness that is dangerous, we think, oh, that's just Old Testament stuff. That, just is, that you know, God was angrier back then. Brothers and sisters, this very passage, Isaiah 6, the gospel writers in the New Testament return to over and over and over again. Every single gospel writer goes back to this very passage to try to understand how it is that the Messiah shows up and yet still people reject him. How the message that bring life to those who receive it could also be the message that people stumble over and fall. And so this morning, we are confronted by the Holy, Holy, Holy One in the man from Nazareth. The Messiah before whom the disciple Thomas fell on his face and said, my Lord and my God. The one who showed up to John on an island called Patmos in the book of Revelation with his face burning like the sun in full strength, his voice like the roar of many waters, and his eyes like flaming fire. This is the God that we encounter every time we open the Scriptures, every time we gather together and hear the preached Word, every time we sing to Him, every time that we share His story. We and all our neighbors are confronted with this Holy, Holy, Holy One. And every time we are faced with the same choice that faced God's people in Isaiah's day, will this confrontation consume us? and destroy us and bring death because of our impurity and our wickedness and sin? Or will we run to God as a sanctuary and experience His covering of our sin and live the life that we were always called to, walking with a holy, holy, holy God? Will the message bring life or will it bring death? Isaiah says those are the only choices. And brothers and sisters, they're the only choices facing us today as well. If the message is to bring life, we have to follow in the footsteps of Isaiah, and that in at least three ways. First, we have to repent. Isaiah discovers that he carries his sin and impurity with him, and that he is undone when he comes into the searing light of God's holiness, and he admits it. If we want to experience God's presence as life instead of death, we have to fall on our faces and say to God, God, I am undone. By your goodness, because I am a sinner who has rebelled against you, and I need you to forgive me, to cover my sin like you covered Isaiah's, not with a burning coal, but with the blood of your son Jesus who died for me. Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you, like King Uzziah, we have so often waltzed into God's presence assuming that we're good to go. We have far too often sought to manipulate and control this God And if that's where you are, if you have downplayed the parts of God that you don't like and turned up the volume on the parts of God that you do like, if you've believed, like I've too often believed, that you could have God in your own terms, see here the God whose glory is a threat to us unless we repent and ask for forgiveness and allow Him to cover us with His life so that we can live in His presence as he always designed us to do. So we repent, but second, we plead. It's easy to miss, but when God says, this word is going to bring judgment, Isaiah, Isaiah calls out, how long, O Lord? Those four words were taken straight out of the Psalms of Lament. Those are words of protest. Those are words of petition. Those are the words of Isaiah saying, Lord, I see the sinners in my neighborhood, in my community. I see the sinfulness in myself. I see the sinfulness that is all around me. And yet, Lord, please do not destroy. And, brothers and sisters, if we are wrecked by God's holiness, then we will get on our face and plead for God's intervention in the lives of our neighbors. See, the truth, the hard truth, is that without Jesus, none of us can survive an encounter with God. And so we need to plead for our neighbors. We need to pray to God that He would intervene in the life of those who don't know this Jesus that we preach and proclaim. We need to tell our friends and loved ones that God's glory fills the earth and threatens to undo us, and yet that same God who has every right to judge will also be a sanctuary and a shield, a place of refuge and salvation if we will but give our lives to Him. We need to announce that word in our world. And then we need to plead with God to make that announcement effective in the lives of our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones and even our enemies. Brothers and sisters, if we are not serious about helping our neighbors find the atoning, cleansing love of God, it can only be because we have not encountered God in all his holiness aright. So let us encounter that holiness this morning and be sent out to intervene on behalf of our neighbors. And then third, we persevere. Isaiah's given the message at the very beginning, this is not going to go well. Isaiah prophesied a long time, four or five kings he, he, he worked alongside. Nothing much but failure over a whole lifetime. And yet God says, this is the ministry that I've called you to. And so whatever happens with the result of our work, whatever happens with the result of our walk with God, God calls us to persevere in faithfulness, to say with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61, no matter what happens, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation." And no matter what results we see with our eyes, we look forward in hope knowing that ultimately as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. That is the hope to which we bear witness even when we cannot see it through lives of repentance, through lives of, of, of pleading with God on behalf of our neighbors, and with lives of persevering faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus has made it possible at the cost of His own life for you and I to dwell in God's holy presence. And so let us washed, redeemed, covered in the life that comes from the shed blood of Jesus. Draw near to God in His holy gloriousness and be sent out to serve Him and to love His world. Let's pray. Father God, we need more than anything to encounter You. Meet us this morning. Wreck us and renew us. and draw us closer to you, Lord. We pray that you would also draw near our neighbors, that you would bring your saving work to the hearts of every Memphian in this city. God, we pray that you would rescue and save the lost. God, we pray that your good news would go forth and that people would be purified by their encounter with you so that you would gather for yourself a mighty community of people from every tongue and tribe and nation who washed in your blood, are able to stand in your holy presence and find the life for which you created us. God, we pray that you would do that. And we pray that you would give us the privilege of being a part of the way that you do that work in your world today. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.